created live on Fireside. Before we get to you, hello everyone, once again, it's another episode of Doing It Sober Live. My name is Chris Nell. Glad to have you with us on Fireside. My saucy co-host by the name of uh, Daniela Park is absent today, but she is here in the background. She'll be running the board while, of course, I'll be running the show from here. Uh, needless to say, our guest has arrived, so let's cut with all the pleasantries and get straight to business. Now, you've heard this theme numerous times on uh, Doing It Sober Live, we welcome pioneers, themselves who champion new ways of thinking and doing, new ways of living truth, new ways of planting seeds, and showing the world by posing the question, first it was why me, now it's why me. And here it is, where we welcome a name like Keith C. Butler. Keith boasts immaculate accolades, such as a bronze medalist for bowling, one of my favorite sports. He holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree with a triple major in theater and dance, as well as African-American studies. So with all that, cue the question, is there anything he can't do? But, but, big bus here, behind every success story, there once was darkness. However, despite prejudice on all sides, Keith overcame his iniquities by having chose to put his best foot forward, and thus he became a champion. Keith recently has authored his memoirs entitled Little Black Gay Boy, which enjoys rotation not only on Amazon, within itself a famous place for first-time writers, but also through Barnes & Noble, which is an accolade in its own right. The man himself is coming here to tell his story. So without further ado, put your hands together for Keith C. Butler. Make yourself be known, Squire. Wow. What an introduction. That was amazing. Thank you so much. It's only a pleasure, Keith. Now, let's take the story from the very beginning. How exactly did your road start? I imagine it wasn't a pleasant one. No, um, my road wasn't a pleasant one. Um, I grew up in a very small town in Virginia called Windsor, Virginia. Um, right. we, had, we had about 74 people in my graduating class. And uh, we had 500 some students in the school altogether. There's like 500 some students in some classes um, in some schools anywhere. And I grew up a very poor family. We were on welfare. Uh, we didn't have indoor plumbing. Um, so we didn't have an indoor um, place to use the restroom. Uh, we had an outhouse, uh, which is very common in the rural area. But we were mm -hmm. a family that had an outhouse. Um, it was a struggle, struggle sure. for, for several years to be able to um, be included and wanting to be a part of. But, you know, feeling embarrassed that I could never have friends over because what if they wanted to go to the bathroom? Well, they would have to go to the mm -hmm. outhouse, you know. Um, there was no running water. Um, for drinking or anything like that, you know, so so it was a very strong it was a very hard struggle um, Growing sure. up, you know, and I and my mother she and did I, the best that she could with what she had so um, I don't fault her um, For what we did not have but what we did have and what she was able to get through social services You know, she put it to good use well, you know what you've struck a chord with me there with uh, the power of a mother I myself was raised by a single mother. I had a father, surely, but an absentee father. And um, our house was also abusive, emotionally, mentally, and physically. Was there something similar to that degree in your upbringing? Yeah, but you know, that really didn't start for me until later um, in high school, like my um, junior oh. senior year, that 
um, you know, the abuse, you know, started. Now, I did have, I did have a sexual abuse that happened. Um, I see. I was about five or six years old. I um, see. With, I see. With, an, with a, uh, a person in my family. Um, but the, the I'm sorry to abuse, hear. Uh, the mental abuse started when I uh, went to live with uh, a relative, uh, one of my mom's brothers, and and uh, my mother and, and stepfather. They um, they decided to move. Um, my stepfather's one of his brothers, you know, inherited some land, you know, and mm-hmm. um, and he gave an acre of land to each of his brothers and sister, and they all bought uh, mobile homes to put on those right next to each other so they could live together, you know, in a community. Wow. Yeah, it was very clever nice. thinking. You know, for me, I was you know in the junior year of my high school, and I was like, well, I don't want to start a new school in the middle of my junior year. So, um, in order for me to stay in Virginia, in Windsor, my mother mm-hmm. said I had to live. I had to live with this uncle, and living with this uncle, um, it was it was hell. You know, in fact, um, sure. I think I think the title in the book is called you know living in hell and surviving <laughs> is what that mm. title is called because. Um, uh, living in hell and finally escaping, that's what it's called. It was, it was, it was hell. He, he did everything he could to break me. Um, sure. He would, he would, he would call me the most outrageous names, um, me, um, anything that would give me pleasure or put me to the next level of my life, any extracurricular activities at school, he was, he would threaten to snatch those away from me and figure out ways to try to do that. And it never was in his favor, never in his favor. Um, but I'm grateful to know that, you know, at, even at that time, um, what I call my higher power today, you know, God, right. you know, had a plan for me and was always Amen. looking out for me, was always looking out for me and and had my back every step of the way. And I, sure. remember, I remember one time um, I was working at the local Dairy Queen um, at this time I was living with him. And, uh, and in order for me to live with them, um, social services decided that they would give them a certain amount of money. Um, for me to live with them since they were going to be my guardians and take care of me and feed me and that type of thing. And so right. um, one day he came to me and he was like, you're going to give me your paycheck from Dairy Queen as well. And I don't know what got into me, but I looked him right in the face and I was like, over my dead body, you will not be taking the paycheck that I work hard for. Whatever you want to do with the social services money, do whatever you please. But my Good paycheck, on you. you will not see it. Um, and, and I think that took him by surprise as well because he looked at it and he was, and you can see that he stepped back and he ended up walking away because I don't think he didn't think that this little boy that he had tormented and terrorized, you know, had that within it. Well, you know what? Good on you for doing that. And I think in any person's life who has been subjected to a similar or a chapter and verse stimuli of that caliber, which is a point where they themselves, a switch just kicks in and they say, enough is enough. And eventually when you take that defense, the oppressor stands back. But now I'm very curious when I read up on your bio, tell me, how is it that what's the romance, if you understand the question, that you find as a theater arts major? Because I come from the theater myself, believe it or not. Um, the theater for me was a place of escape. When I needed to... I knew you were going to say that. For me, it was that place of... Uh, the theater was a place for me to be able to get away uh, when I needed to get away. Um, it was a place of refuge, you know, it also, sure, in, college, sure. in college, it became a place of home and uh, mm, family mm. because, you know, in the theater department in college, you know, we were, we were always in the theater department and in the building because 
we had rehearsals after after all of our classes. So, you know, we would eat lunch there. We would do our homework there. Um, we would go maybe to the library for a little bit, but then we would come back to the theater because we had to get ready for rehearsal. Then we'd be at rehearsal, and then all of us would go out together after rehearsals or after shows. So it became like this family, you know. Um, I, Can I ask a silly question? Yes. Did you do the classics and the contemporary plays in college? Yes. Yes, and I also took spoken word. So because of the spoken word, you we had to oh. all the classics and the contemporaries. Yeah, I bet you did it someplace by August Wilson. Oh, absolutely! Two trains running, um, fences, bottom two uh, fences. Absolutely, yeah. And let me guess, your idol in theater must be James Earl Jones. Um, no, I wouldn't say. No, that was that, that was that was smart, Alec. That was smart, Alec. I admit, but give it to him. No one can do August Wilson like James Earl did. There was no wonder that he won the Tony for Fences. And sure, Denzel did made a great film yeah. about it. It's the All American Play. Now, yeah. I'm, I'm a South African. Understand. And to me, any form of theater is culture. And what I love about it is it speaks to the soul, especially August's plays. I'm only familiar with Fences. I know Two Trains Running by Title, but it's not just a struggle play, in my opinion. And I'm, listen now, I'm adapting or adapting, analyzing it from a millennial point of view. It's the all societal play because it deals with struggles, familial structure, struggle with identity. It's the typical prodigal story. And I think everyone at least should either go see it or they should read it. Because they'll identify themselves in that play. I hear exactly what you're saying with regards to theatre. It's the same escape I found, and I was able to create a persona of what I liked. Because when you're in the midst of abuse, you don't know who you are. Because there's no self-image. But when you're on that stage and you're you're iterating poetry from the best... Just something. It's that inexplicable sweat that comes on. And then it's a I love myself moment. But then there's a danger in that because now you want more. You get what I'm, you get what I'm saying. It becomes very, it, it becomes, if I can use this word, it becomes very addictive to be on stage. And, and trust me. Oh, yeah. It has been, you know, uh, people uh, all the time, they go, oh, my gosh, you're so good on the microphone. So I, I get asked to. And you are. MC events all the time, and, and they're like, you know, how do you do that? How do you just get up there and just command a, an audience? And I'm like, that's my training. You know, that was that was the training. You know, because I felt so comfortable on stage. Sure, you know? sure. I felt comfortable in that element of using my gifts and talents in that way. You know, theater also sure. was such a a therapy for me. I remember um, in sure. college. Um, and I talk about this in the book as well, is that, you know, there was a time where I had a friend in college who committed suicide. And, um, oh, and I, found no. out about it, I found out about it right before I had a rehearsal. Um, and I was in a comedy at that time. Um, and, uh, and, and when I went to show up for rehearsal, the director, you know, he met me backstage and he said, he says, you don't have to be here tonight if you don't want to be. And I said, no, I need to be somebody else for a little while, just, just to be somebody else, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so that two hours of rehearsal gave me the opportunity to, to get outside of my head and my feelings and play a character, you know, so that I was able mm-hmm. to put that down and then I could just pick it back up when the rehearsal was over. But it gave me two hours of, of therapy relief. 
to be able to let my emotions just be for a moment. Because that was a hard thing to go through at that time. I can also relate that I lost someone who I loved very dearly. Um, and I had to go on radio that night to do a show. And I said to myself, I'll cry after I'm finished. Did the show, how I got through it, God knows. I was told it was okay. And when I got home, I got pissed as a fart and tears started just coming down my face. So you've got my regards there. Keith, we're going now into the hard and the not so easy. But if there's at any given time where you feel uncomfortable, please, you're not under any obligation to answer in full. You mentioned that you grew up in a mixed family. You hopped around from place to place. You were subjected to um, abuse by a family member and another sort of abuse. Whereabouts did your dalliance with... You were an alcoholic and drug addict, right? I became an alcoholic and drug addict, absolutely. And I, I always say that... Um, I always talk to my sponsors and I say, you know, the drugs and the alcohol are a result and there's a root, there's a root as the reason why we picked up. And so it's right. important for us to understand what that root is, because once we understand what the root of the alcoholism, what the addiction is, once we understand the root, then we can work on that to help us to on staying clean and sober. Um, and so mm. for me, I understood that, you know, what I was dealing with at home was uh, a way for me to try to figure out who I was and to be a part of, to be included, and and I could never figure that out. And so when I got introduced to drugs and alcohol, you know, I found out how I could be included. I found out how I could be a part of, um, but it was the fall of mm. And so it took sure. me to a place of darkness, you know, and for me, it became dark fast. Yeah, I mean, mm, like, um, I can imagine. There's a, there's a reading in a meeting I go to that says we didn't get addicted in one day. And I always shake my head because I was like, the 15 minutes of my drug of choice, 15 minutes in, I knew that that was going to be the drug that I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. And, mm, and mm. I'm so grateful that at some point in my life, I could understand that I could make a different choice. Um, wow. Because as the work started to unfold itself, and I started to understand that the child abuse, the sex abuse, the mental abuse, all of that I had still been carrying needed to be, you know, worked on and processed through so that I could learn mm. to release them and let them not define me. Clever done. You've almost got me at a loss for words. And I'm not saying this to pump your tires. I can hear from the way that you speak. You are highly educated. And I don't want to pump your tires again, but it sounds like you've done a lot of work. Just quickly, how long have you been sober? I'm Well, this will be my second time around, so relapse is a full right. story. I had seven years okay. before, and then I relapsed, um, and now I'm coming up. November will be six years. Well done. Yeah, and I'm grateful you know, for that. I'm grateful for... Um, well, it plays out in your face. I can see it. <laughs> I can see it. I mean, with a smile like that from ear to ear is indicative that you're enjoying your freedom and you know what i say to everyone who i encounter you deserve it if you've gone through sheol to obtain it and you are working every given day to maintain it yes. then by all accounts you deserve it now yeah. needless to say you know this you know this is equal as well as i we're not going to get the old at a boy you know naughty badge 
recognition, but you know you deserve it, and you're the most important part of the story. So that said, who gives a toss? What are the people's what are the people's accolades? What are the people's um, thought processes are? But Keith, tell me something. What are some of the life lessons that you've learned? And now we're talking around about your second time around. You said finding out who you are, um, accepting who you are. In your road going forward, I understand as well you uh, did a lot of research. And I'm alluding to your mine in African-American studies, which is part of that identity uh, journey. What are some of the life lessons that you've learned and how have you awakened that in some of your other sponsees that you've worked with? Well, in this time around, I there's I don't know if I can show, say this or not, but um, I'm not promoting it. I'm just saying this is what helped me. No, of course. Um, Go ahead. There was there was a, a show called Iyanla Fix My Life with Iyanla Van Zandt. And um, okay. she, 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 I consider her one of my spiritual mentors. And all right. And, um, and I remember um, when I would watch her show, I, w- I would sit down with with notebook and, and pen, and I would take notes. And I and I felt like when she was working with somebody else on whatever issue it was that what it was that they were working on, that she was also speaking to me. And I remember her one time saying, "The hardest battle in life, Ace, is the battle between the part of us that wants to be healed and the part of us that is comfortable and content remaining broken." The oh, hardest powerful. battle in life that we face is the part of us that wants to be healed and the part of us that is comfortable and content remaining broken. And I remember right. this time around that I was no longer comfortable and content remaining broken. I needed something to be different. And what I needed to do this time around was when I relapsed, I relapsed because I got to a point in my life where I said I didn't need a program. I didn't need people who were working programs. I didn't need the meetings. I didn't need the gatherings. I didn't need the association. I could do it on my own. And that was not how I could do it, you know, because what mm-hmm. I basically did was when I gave myself permission to do it on my own, I also gave myself permission to make my own choices. Instead of mm-hmm. thinking, do the next right thing, I was just do the next key thing. And I had to understand this time around that my higher power's will had to be greater and the priority in my life. And so for that, I was really, really grateful for that. Um, and so when I came back in, I had to tell my sponsor at the time, I need to treat this as if I've never heard any of it. I've never heard the okay. steps. I've never read any books. I've never been to any meetings. I don't know the phrases. I don't know the catchphrases. I don't know any of the things that people say. I have to treat this as if I'm brand new, fresh off the street for the very first time. Because the moment that I say to myself, that I know this and I got this, that's the moment that I would be heading for a relapse. Because I remember after that seventh year, the first time around, that's exactly what that voice started to say was, oh, you got this. You got this. You don't You don't need them. You got this. And so mm-hmm. this time mm-hmm. around, two and a half years in, that same voice came. And it's always so funny because it was in my right ear. And that same voice came in and the voice said, oh, you got this. And I said, nope, I don't got this. So I switched up my program and I got a different sponsor and I threw myself back into the steps and I started to do the work, really, really do the work. Um, and because of that, you know, my life has opened up. You know, the things that have happened to me are beyond my wildest dream. And all I keep thinking is all I did was say yes to life one day. I said yes. And my higher power said, that's all I need. I'll take care of the rest. My golly. You know, just going off on a subtle tangent, you talk about hearing the voice in the right ear. Now, you know as well as I, 
The brain consists of two halves. Your left side is your numerical side. But if you're a creative, you've got bugger all of the left side. So maths, trigonometry, geography, it's out the window. But with your right side, which is your creative side, the long story short is you pick up sound a whole lot more quicker with your right ear than with your left. It's unbelievable how that science works. But I hear exactly with what you're saying, bringing it back to the topic, you know, it, even I, all the time, even at a new meeting, like to empty my mind as if I know apps completely zip, because in that way, I still remain teachable. But now, with your, with the title of your talk being Accepting Your Past, I'm assuming there might be still little hints, flickers of what was. But I'm sure your constitution is now built up to such a point where you allow yourself a three-second rule. You let that memory in, but only for three seconds. But then you cut it off and you say, that's who I was. It's not who I am anymore. And then you carry on about your day. Is that more or less something Absolutely. you use in your arsenal? Absolutely. You know, uh, you can't – I never tell my sponsees – I treat it this way. Let me put it this way. I, my sponsees, I say – for me, life today is like driving a car. You have rearview mirror and you have the windshield. Do we okay. understand why the rearview mirror is smaller than the windshield? Because we can look uh, I see. at the live back there. The windshield is our focus, and that gives us the widest view. So that's where we're heading. So it's important for us to look and continue to go forward. But every now and then, we have to look back there. It doesn't mean we have to live back there. I'm stealing that. I am stealing that. I'm sorry. I'm somewhere But I, 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 you know, there is nothing, and I'm really going to say, I think say 90% of the time, I'm going to say 90% of the time, that is of my own. It's something I picked up from somewhere else that I just applied to my life. Because what you said earlier was a statement that is so, so true to me, and that is, I remain open to learn. I stay mm. open to learn. So every time I go to a meeting and I hear somebody speaking, even if I've heard this person speak four or five times before, I'm still going to listen with an open heart and an open mind. Because they say that this time that I didn't hear before. And because of that, mm. it's going to give me mm. a tool to put in my box. Well, I, I share those sentiments. You know, from time to time, I put up videos in black and white grayscale on my on social media. And I also spoke about my attempted suicide. Um, but this now coincides with what you and I were talking about of the rearview mirror versus the windscreen. Um, I think there comes a point in any person's life, and it could be in midterm or in long term. Each individual is different, where uh, you think to yourself, fine, I've gone through all this trial and tribulation, but now I look at the previous trials differently. It's not more of a fact of I failed. I don't believe in failure whatsoever. It's my choice to not think that way. Because if you take the word fail and break it all down into, into a full sentence, it's actually an acronym. First action in learning. If you want to put a euphemistic, if you want to put a euphemistic term on it. I'm writing that down. <laughs> I'm surprised you don't know it because it stems from American literature. First action in Learning. If you want to put a more euphemistic turn on it, think about it this way. Any landing you can walk away from. 
is a good landing. Sure, the rotor might be a little bent or the engine might have fallen off mid-flight and you had to make an emergency landing in a marsh, but you walked away from it. So that indicates in both instances what you have went through is a lesson. It's not a prison sentence. Now, granted, granted, there are people who might not think the same because they're still trapped in that matchbox, can we say, of, my goodness, this has happened to me. How, why am I here? That's fine in itself because that's already a start for growth. But you, what I'm trying to say, I think, is you can't rush a person to get into that point of being fine. It's your own journey at the end of the day. Let's get it back to you. Same example. You went through a lot of trials and tribulations. You came to that point where you said, you know what, I have to heal a part of me that's broken. You've come to accept yourself for who you are. You are homosexual, which is fine. But that being said, it's part of the healing process. We all have part of our stories where we discover more of ourselves, I believe, and it makes the journey all the more enlightening. I think is what I'm trying to say. Now, let's talk about your writing work because here's another similarity I find. If you are a performer, you can be a writer. That's my opinion. Because again, it's your right brain and just from the ability out of nowhere, you may not have had training for it, but you just have this uncanny ability to put words to paper. But one thing that I will not deny when it comes to writing down your memoirs, it must have been not a painstaking, but a painful process. Yeah. Um, tell us about how did you go about to come making the decision to write the book Little Black Gay Boy? Did you use a ghostwriter? Was it entirely your own work? And what was your mission? And what was the outcome ultimately at the end of the day? Well, I have had this book. I would say I've had this book inside of me for for many years, and I just never felt that anybody would want to read it or who who am I? Nobody knows who Keith Butler is, so why would they want to read his story? Like, you know, um and so I I've had this story building up inside of me for for many years. And then eighteen, um, I went to a friend who I met in California. Um he wrote his his book. He wrote his first book on about being a Polish American and um all the great things that have happened for him in Hollywood and that type of thing. And he came to Chicago on his book tour and I remember sitting in that room and watching him and and sitting through that experience and the whole time I'm sitting there I can feel my higher power doing this and, oh. and I can hear and I can hear he's going he did it look you can do this you got proof right here in front of you that you can do this and I was like okay so I walked out of that room that day in 2018 and said I'm going to write my book um, it, it's it's the motivation that I needed to write my book. So 2019, wow. I stepped out of every um, leadership role that I had in the different uh, in the recovery community. I had a few leadership roles, the leader of fundraisers, the leader of support groups and things like that. A way for me to say, cause I can make an excuse to say, well, I'm involved in all these things, so I really don't have time. So I had to step out of those roles <laughs> in order to sit down. I out of those Forgive roles. me, I laugh, but I can understand. Yeah, right? yeah you know, because... If I'm making a commitment to do this, then I have to make the room and the space and the time to do it. Um, sure. And then when I sat down to write the book in 2019, I started in 2019. Um, when I sat down to write the book, I said, okay, if I'm going to do this, then it's important that I tell the whole truth, that I don't hold anything back, 
and that I tell my story. I'm not telling anyone else's story. I'm telling my story, my experiences, and the things that happened to me. That's that's what I'm going to do here. And that's what I set out to do. And you're right. Writing this book had a lot of uh, therapeutic moments, um, had a lot of um, ways of me being able to let go of some things that I was still carrying. Um, and I remember, uh, I'll never forget it, when I wrote the chapter, Fatherless Boy, and it's about the almost meeting my father for the very first time when I was about 16. Uh, and I, and I almost, I almost met, almost met him. And, and I remember after I wrote that chapter and I'll never forget it. It was probably like about three o'clock in the morning and I hit the period and I pressed enter to go to the next chapter. After I hit enter, I broke down crying. Because I really felt like that moment was the moment that I was able to release everything that I had been carrying around experience. Very powerful for me. And it was, it, mm. it was, what well, was so, and the reason why I remember it, because I remember, period, enter, whoosh, it all came down. So, you know, this book allowed me to tell my story and to tell my truth and the hopes that it will definitely help somebody else. Because when mm. I was a little black gay boy in Windsor in a rural area, I didn't have a book. I didn't have anything to help me mm. to understand mm. who I am. You know, I'm coming up on 50 years old, so I'm hoping... No way! Yes, yes! No, you're pulling me one over. You don't even look near 50. July <laughs> Oh, you're also July. I'm July too. Cancers, <laughs> But I get what you're saying. There was, there must have been moments of complete therapy. You basically did your fourth, fifth, and sixth column all in one go, and a resentment letter. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I'm I'm grateful that I did the work. Um, in doing that work, it has really given me the strength to continue to stay doing the work in my recovery. You know, but sure, sure. the work I've done in my recovery, you know, allowed me to be able to mentally focus and spiritually open to be able to put these words down and to tell mm. these stories. Um, and my mother, you know, my mother, uh, we, didn't, we don't have the, we didn't have the best relationship, but um, since this book has come out, you know, my mother and I, our relationship continues to, to grow because I'm of glad to hear my willingness to tell the truth, even though she may not agree with it, but she has a high respect for it. Um, and that's sure. what I've ever asked for. Well, you know what? He's, you knock it out of the ballpark. Look, I think with a parent having a notion of what their child should be in any circumstance is a fallacy because we're all born different, different personalities, different character traits, different um, aspirations. But you know what? That's a trait that I think will always be there. But there will also come a point as one ages. No, I repent, matures. As one matures, eventually they come to the realization, you know what, I've got someone special here. I shouldn't have imposed that notion on them. Let's support them for the best that happened. And it's happened to me, you know. Uh, I was expected to be, you know, a doctor or a lawyer, you know, those fancy-schmancy sort of professions, but uh, I was born to be an extrovert in title, but uh, a communicator in so many words. And when my parents saw, my mother specifically saw that, she nurtured that, my father not so much. Keith, let's talk about... Uh, bowling because that's something that is it's just something that I enjoy to do I remember doing it for the first time as, as at 12 years old and on my very first attempt 
I hit a strike. I tell you, there's a frust- a lot of cage fighters take out their frustration on a boxing bag just to get rid of that that energy. But the moment that you put that energy into the swing and you hit those pins, it's like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> Where did your appetite for bowling begin? You know, it was it, it's the weirdest thing. Like. I never, as a kid, never had any interest or never, you know, it's just, it would be on TV on Saturdays, you know, and, and I wasn't into a lot of crunch, okay. but for some reason, you know, um, NBC Sports, you know, would have bowling and I would be, and I would watch it and I would find it so fascinating. And so mm. in 1991, when I moved to, um, from the small rural town of Windsor to Norfolk, Virginia Beach. I um, had a, a lady at my church one time, and she said, "She said, hey, I can't go to bowling today. She said, would you mind going and subbing for me? And I said, sure, I'll go. And I went, and I had such a blast. And the next Sunday, she was like, well, I really can't continue on the team. Would you mind taking my spot? And I was like, absolutely. And so I was bowling in 1991. And I'm I literally, I just had a tournament. So you're catching me right time that I'm just coming off of a tournament where for the first time in my bowling career, I tied for first in all events in my bowling career. Woo-wee. It, was, it was amazing. It was amazing. It was some of the best bowling I have ever done since I've been bowling. Well, you know what I'm sure. <laughs> Danny on the soundboard, tell me, you also a play recently called Kevin. What was that about? Um, so it was actually a, a show called Kevin's Room. It was shot here in Chicago. Kevin's Room. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it was actually in 2001, 2003, and 2005. And it was a show um, that the Chicago Department of Public Health put together and, and produced. Um, and it's, uh, I play a gay counselor who puts together support okay. for um, gay men of color. And we basically are talking about um, HIV AIDS and getting tested, going back for results. Because we found that at oh. that particular time, um, in, in, in during that 2000, early 2000 period, people were getting tested, but a lot of people were not going back for the results because they didn't want to know the answer. Um, so, I can imagine. Our show, about that. Uh, our show talked about family. Our show talked about, you know, um, being able to um, reconcile your spirituality and sexuality. Um, so it talked about, it dealt with a lot of, lot of different things. It, you know, we got to be in film festivals all over the country, um, also in a couple of other countries as well. And, um, and it, was, okay. it was an honor. It was an honor for me to play Kevin in, in Kevin's role. So basically, this was like Tony Kushner's Angel in America and Normal Heart, full colored people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And let me understand this right. You guys performed it on stage and it was videotaped and made into a film that was shown in film festivals. No, no, it was all done on film. It was, it was, it was, oh. shot, it was, it was shot like a movie. Yeah. My, yeah. my, I got my, I got my, uh, research wrong. I beg apology because I was under the, the impression that it was a taped stage play because you get those now these days. Do you miss the, do you miss the theater? Do you long to go back? Um, no, I don't, I won't say, I say I miss it. And, and, and in the recovery community, we have shows that we do put on for the recovery community. So I'm always involved in those. In fact, the, okay. the, right, the person who writes those shows, he always makes sure he writes a role for me. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But as far as the hours and the time that it takes 
to you know be on stage and to, and to be part of a show you know it's it's a lot of work you know it's a lot it's of work. taxing and and i find myself going i could i could be doing something else with my time right now so, i get you i get you in my life where well now now what i do on the flip side is I go to a lot of theater. My partner and I, we subscribe to Stephen Wolf Theater. We subscribe to Broadway in Chicago. So we get oh, a lot, a lot of theater. Um, and, and so that Gary is, Sinise is one of my heroes. Gary Sinise is one of my heroes. And I mean, what he has done for the military over years and years and years, and what he's doing currently now for law enforcement with the COVID pandemic. And who, who would have thought three people got together underneath a church basement and put on this, this this theater company just to put on shows basically for Bubkiss, influenced by uh, Cassavetes in their style, would become this legendary ritual, dare I say, yeah. which became a breeding ground for a lot of talent we know today. Uh, this is too far along. Mate, as we start drawing to a close, what's next for Keith C. Butler moving forward? Like I said, I'm coming up on six years of recovery. I'm excited about that. Uh, I just finished taking my sponsees through the... 12 steps and um, and and very soon probably over the summer is when I'm going to be sitting down and starting my second book and it's going to be wow a self-help book I want to share some of my um, good stories and bad stories of my addiction the trials um, that I face and walking through the program um, so that people have another resource to be able to read a story and go that's exactly how I feel and that's what I feel about, you know, being afraid to do my fourth step. Um, and then I just want to share with them the reward that comes with doing that fourth step. So so that second book is going to be um, another book that I will sit down um, and apply what I have learned and, and have taken so far into my life. Well, you know what, Keith? I say it from one person to another. I think you've done tremendous groundbreaking work, as I mentioned in the intro, but I mean it. Um, I believe you've got a lot to be proud of. And on behalf of the people's lives you've touched and on those lives who you're still going to touch, we humbly thank you. We humbly thank you for appearing on the show. I thank you. Danny thanks you. And everyone who's listening to this thanks you. I'm sure there'll be a little kernel worth investigating to everyone who sees this. We wish you nothing and all but the blessed in your future endeavors and we'll be keeping an eye on you tell daddy i love her and i love doing it sober all of my medallions come from doing it sober i love it god bless you mate and so ladies and gentlemen that was the latest edition of doing it sober live thank you so much for joining us again a tremendous thanks to our guest keith c butler if you have any questions on uh, enduring episodes please don't be afraid to present them we'll ask them we can even throw out a q a to our guests and until we see you next tuesday be well. God bless each and every one of you. Bye-bye.